All right, Jeremy, what do you have today? Strange drownings, and I'm doubling down on Trump Kennedy. What do you have? I have Oppenheimer. Is it the bomb or is it a dud? Spoiler alert, it's a dud. And now they're putting food in chains, Jeremy. Let's get to the truth. Okay, people, let's begin. Liftoff! Get up, everybody! Are you ready to be baited with the truth? Good, because you're listening to the Truth Bait Podcast. I'm documentary filmmaker and podcaster Andrew Marcus, and with me always, as we deconstruct America's propaganda war and put some truth back into the narrative, is the only doctor of cultural therapy you should be booking an appointment with. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Give it up for the one and only Rebel Pundit, Jeremy Siegel. Mr. Siegel. Dr. Siegel. I think I'm better at cultural therapy than therapy. I got a few texts after that last one. People (laughs) thought that was funny. Yeah. Cultural narrative. We are your cultural therapists. Book an appointment on our nouch. I'm. I could use a doctor. I'm a little sick. I'm a little under the weather. I don't know if you could hear it. Uh, Do I have a nasally voice today? Uh, You know what? You haven't spoken enough for me to really hear. So far, you sound good. But uh, yeah, if you're not feeling well, that makes. That makes you today's uh, hero to the truth. Okay. Very impressive, Jeremy. Very impressive. Thank you for showing up uh, and uh, giving of your time. With your, are you at sixteen children yet? Do you have how many are you at now? <laughs> it's been a, it's been a few it's, minutes. It's it's still six. Okay, it's still six. And you're yeah. not feeling well. It is. Uh, I, a gift to have you here in all sincerity. So, um, we had 32 ducklings hatch this week. Now, so 32 ducklings, how many ducks are responsible for 32 ducklings? Only four. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) They're like rabbits. Yeah. They're kind of like rabbits. Um, yeah, I looked outside. There were, well, we had like, 20 something hatch and then all of a sudden the other day my kids were screaming they're like dad there's more ducks there's more ducks i'm like okay and they're like no look there's more ducks and i go out and sure enough there's there are 12 more following their mom around that she must have been hiding a nest in the woods somewhere because i wasn't aware of it (laughs) hiding them from you very private uh have they chosen their genders there, I don't know. I think it's already been preordained. <laughs> I, okay. Uh, they may want to switch because the males are going to end up in the freezer. <laughs> Wait. Uh. <laughs> how, so how many seasons can you get out of the females? 
I I don't know. This is the first time they've bred. We've had them for a few years. Uh, they're actually not ducks. They're called Muscovies. They're from South America. They look exactly like ducks. Oh, you had they, to. Oh, you had to get some ducks from south of the border because you yeah, you they couldn't find any like, American ducks that would do the job for you. They walk like ducks. Uh, they look like ducks, but evidently they are not technically ducks. They are Muscovies, and they we have them for fly control. They <laughs> how eat well, flies. How well do they? How well do they patty? I mean, isn't that really the important question? <laughs> <laughs> we have them for flies, and they eat flies. And in one week, all the flies on our land will be gone because the little ducklings, well, or Muscovylings, go around and eat all the ducks and it's wonderful natural pest control and uh, in a few months we will go around and eat the <laughs> muscovies <laughs> why don't the, you just the cut the muscovy of out of the middleman process out of the middleman position and just eat the bugs jeremy yeah now we're getting somewhere we'll be in full compliance <laughs> uh okay well <laughs> here wait there you go. <laughs> Dinner. <laughs> yes. Uh, how are how is duck compared to chicken? I really have never. I have not had many encounters with duck on my plate. Really? Yeah. I, oh, it's delicious. I love duck. It's great. How is it compared? You've to Never chicken? had duck. Does it taste anything like? It? I, I. You know what? I think I've had duck once, and it, it tasted very. I don't know. A little more gamey than I'm used to. I guess. It may have just been that experience, because I, yeah, it's just it's more like a it's more like a red meat, um, so you know preparation wise, oftentimes you would get like a duck breast that's more like cooked like a medium, not so much like you know you overcook chicken, you know, to make sure it's okay. Um, but there's it's challenging because you got they have a much thicker layer of fat under the skin and you have to you know you have to really render that fat down so you're not just gnawing on duck fat but uh, and then there's other ways you can cook it like the asians like to put it i think on a rotisserie all day and it gets nice and crispy you ever have crispy duck yeah i just want to give you some that was good that's our china report um, music but i thought it would be appropriate yeah. now <laughs> i like that yeah, I don't know. Ducks great, and then, and these ducks, I don't have to do anything. I don't even have to feed them. They they just hatch them. The moms raise them. It's like a wild bird, but they live in the yard and they don't leave. They have wings. They can fly. I don't clip their wings. Sometimes they fly over to my neighbor's house and eat his weeds. They don't eat our weeds for some reason. <laughs> can you get them to. to eat the bush that blocks your internet? <laughs> <laughs> That's I, a good idea. Look, I, might I, just just, have, I might just tie a goat up over there. <laughs> uh, tie it to the tree. Tie it to the bush. Yeah. Um, right. I just have trouble eating things that were presented to me as animated uh, characters for me to to below, uh, to to love as a child. Uh, Daffy Duck, uh, Bugs Bunny. I have trouble eating rabbits. Minnesota Fats. I don't like uh, frogs legs. Um, and, uh, although I do make an exception for foghorn leghorn. Oh, duck is, is, is delicious. I'm looking forward to it. These, 
ducks finish out around 12 to 15 pounds each. Uh, not ducks, muscovies. They oh, look like ducks. That's big. Yeah. Are I mean, you it's a going good, to, when you say meal. finish them off, Jeremy, are you going to be doing the deed on the, on the muscovies? I think we're going to have to. I don't know if there's actually a processor around that does ducks. So wait, the the wait, I know the, the chicken the part the chicken processor doesn't just do like like most birds that you would give them. They do, yeah. They do turkeys. They do guinea hens. But they, they don't do, do uh, pheasants. But they don't do ducks. Is there something special and about the? Duck? I should ask <laughs> if they'll do muscovies. I don't know. Right, it's not a duck. They're gonna say it. They're gonna say it looks like a duck to me. It's not a duck. But do you want me? Anyways. Do you want me to do it for you? I want you to come over and help, and I'll let you take one home. I actually and have a recording of me already doing that. <laughs> <laughs> That's I brought Jill with me. <laughs> uh, okay, what do you have? I, it's been we've now gone like almost ten minutes with this, and I forgot what you have. What do you have? Um, Other well, than I was Kennedy. converting this. Oh in- my gosh, I can't believe you're bringing Kennedy back. You're really gonna. You're going back into the buzz into saw. You homestead. realize I was converting this into a homesteading podcast. <laughs> um, I'm going back into Kennedy because I meant to use this clip last time when you ambushed me with all of this old, mm-hmm. all this old Kennedy archives. You went and dug up to to try to smear him. Mm. Um, <laughs> Don't you hate that? No, you yeah, hate when and, that happens? You want to go yeah, first and or you want me to go first with Kennedy? I actually was sort of prepared. I was actually sort of prepared. But I, the, then I was like, I got this clip I wanted to play, but then it got to be late in the episode, and I thought, well, I'll save it, and I'll bring it back next Okay, week. well, here, let's lead um, off with it then. What do, you, what do you have from your future president, your hopeful vice president, uh, RFK. Yeah, Jr. no, that's you, it. I've been, I have been, I have been proclaiming that Trump Kennedy is the only path forward for either of the two men. You love Kennedy, and I like Kennedy a lot. I don't know if I love him. I don't know if I could say I love him. I, mean, I love my kids. I love God. Okay. I don't. I don't think I love Kennedy, but I like him a lot. On that scale, you didn't I, I, love at this Trump. point. At this point, I think I like him as much as I like Trump. Ooh, um, see, okay. Well, that's that's what I meant in terms of your intensity for him is paralleled. And- no, it's my my like for Trump is actually like it's just a like. It's not a love. No, like, I'm not it. one I of these you. people I, that I, thinks Trump I'm is the about messiah. The parody. I'm talking about the parody. Yeah. That's all. Yeah, yeah. No, I think to me, I'll, I'll take either one. I th- I think we'll be in just as good a shape if if either man were were to become president. If Trump were to win again, or if Kennedy were to win for the first time, I think it's equally as good mm-hmm. for for the country. I yes. was I was with you. I was on board. You know, right? I, I'm the you one were. who brought Kennedy yep. to the podcast when he when he launched his his. Uh, campaign. I, I I I was enthusiastic. You were, you were, and then you did some homework and found a bunch of 
archaic old antique <laughs> clips on like that were recorded on cassette or eight track <laughs> you mean you mean words that came out of his mouth yes <laughs> you're right you're, uh, you go, and you, then you did all this highly selective editing and yes <laughs> took everything out of context to make it sound like he's a fascist well what have you got and, to, to show me that i am i am there is nothing to fear nothing what have you got? I have nothing to prove you wrong. Oh. I have nothing to say that some of your concerns are not valid. What I have is going back to my point uh, from the beginning, which was, if you recall, we had an episode called A New Hope. Yes. And that was when we first talked about Kennedy mm-hmm. quite a bit. And I think one of the reasons I came up with that title for the episode was um, sort of that it that I what I thought I was foreseeing was that with all of the you know the continual attack on Trump, the continual uh, attempts to to delegitimize him or indict him or everything that they're throwing at him, steal elections and what have you cheating and uh, staging coups. And then with Kennedy, the media comes out, attacks him the same way right out of the gate that they attacked Trump, you know, and then he's not a real Democrat, just like Trump wasn't a real Republican and uh, all kinds of the same smears. They got members of his family to, speak against him just like they got members of trump's family to speak against him and i in listening to him speak i i was hearing this guy that i thought was like speaking like a normal human being and not reading a script doesn't sound like an ai robot like mike pence and all the other politicians and 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 then i thought you know this is actually there's an opportunity here. There's a, there, the the hope here, in my view, is that there could be some sort of reconciliation in the land between people of the left, people of the right, who are not Marxist, who are not white supremacist, who are basically regular Americans having many different views on many different things, but sharing many views of many things and finding common ground on those things. And you would have a Trump Kennedy ticket uh, because I, it's, it does seem like Trump's going to be in, he could be in trouble again, having a similar sort of thing happen where if, if I think if there were a, a legitimate election, he would win, but I don't, have any faith that, that we would have a legitimate election and so i think it's a long shot that he will though i do think he's going to be the nominee and kennedy you know the democrat party is is rigged in such a way that whoever they the machine wants to be the nominee will be the nominee no matter how popular any other candidate that comes up will be and i suspect that kennedy is going to have quite a bit of popularity among people who are sick of marxists taking the country where they're taking it inside the democrat party and it represents an opportunity for them to partner together and basically reunify people and that 
this was the first time, this was a few days ago, uh, that somebody actually asked Trump because there were other people that were saying this Trump-Kennedy idea that even Roger Stone had said it early on. I think even Steve Bannon had said it early on. Um, so this guy on Newsmax, I always forget his name, Greg, Greg something, um, he asked Trump about it. And that one of the things that's been happening, and you've seen it, is Trump and Kennedy are not attacking each other at all. There has been some respectful criticism of Kennedy giving, you know, toward Trump. And Trump has basically been saying really nice things about Kennedy. He's got great ideas. So I have nothing to disprove any of your concerns. What I have is to say we are still going to see a Trump Kennedy ticket. If he runs, though, as a third party candidate, what do you think that does in this next election? I don't know, but he's got great support in the party. Yeah. He's got, uh, in the Democrat Party, he's got 20%. I saw a poll today, 23% of the vote. That's a lot of vote. And so, I don't know, It's uh, would he run as an independent? he get a lot of votes, I can tell you. Yeah, it's, you know, a, a lot of people like you and him as a combination, too. I don't think that can happen, but uh, I, have you ever thought about that? I just, uh, Trump no, Kennedy looks good on a bumper sticker. It. I read the same yeah. things that you do, and there are a lot of people suggesting it. There's no question about that. No, I've known yeah. him over the years. He's a smart guy and uh, well-intentioned. I really believe he's very well-intentioned. So, although... Uh, that's a lot nicer than anything he said about any Republicans running. It is, although hiring has not been Trump's strong suit. <laughs> it's one of my criticisms of him. <laughs> well, that's what I'm still worried about. That's what I'm still worried about is Trump might know right now or even think it's a maybe it's an idea to run with, but at the end of the day, he's going to get convinced to pick DeSantis and then they'll just shoot him. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh and is that do you have anything else for kennedy that was it i just wanted to throw that in there after uh you maybe you want to send the last episode over to trump to make sure he doesn't pick kennedy the fascist the new no uh, kennedy you, the new hope which i thought you called you, it the new hope because it was like kennedy is your luke skywalker it just isn't fair <laughs> no it was i yeah it was a but it was a broader new hope uh it was but my hope is not in any man but i did have a Wait, hope yeah that, i was gonna say you're not there would into be some reunification you don't do hope do you <laughs> well you know i hope in in god but no i just thought i thought that was worth bringing because it's the first time it actually was addressed by trump i thought uh it was it's interesting to hear how he responded to that question and it it does indicate to me there is a possibility that that's what we're gonna see and i do think it's a possibility that it's been actually planned this way well yeah, because you you did say you thought it was an opportunity, and I do I partially agree with you because I think it's an op. Uh, <laughs> you think it's an right? Op, I know an yeah. opportunity. I just believe I agree with you just on that first part. Uh, this will be a very good segue. You know, you've heard of Villanova University. You yeah, absolutely. Of, yeah, uh, they held a keynote. Uh, 
they said, I'm sorry, they held an international sustainability conference. And uh, RFK Jr. was the keynote speaker. And uh, here, and I, once again, I have applied the formula, the post-production formula to RFK Jr. I've sped <laughs> him up to 120%, and it, and it almost cures his vocal... Uh, what do you call it? His vocal uh, malformity. His vocal. In the last, we were an, executive producer Ann and I were listening to the last episode, and when you were talking about how you had figured out this secret formula mm-hmm. before you did it, she said, "What does he do? Speed it up?" Okay, <laughs> and I'm more suspicious of your wife than ever before because uh, it's d- crazy. She attended Johns Hopkins. She's right. <laughs> yeah, she. Wow. She's like, yeah, we. Yeah, she's like, we do that all the time okay. in our secret club of people. <laughs> well, here he is uh, uh, speaking at Villanova University at the International Sustainability Conference. The National Academy of Sciences did a study, an inventory of all the, the peer-reviewed publications about global warming that had been published between 1996 and 2006 around the world. And um, every one of them, without any exception, agreed on the fundamentals that global warming exists Human beings are causing it. It's already upon us. Its impacts are going to be catastrophic. There were many disagreements about the nuances, but all agreed to those four precepts. Uh, at the same time, 60% of American news articles and electronic news reports about global warming raised doubts about the science. So there was this huge gap between public perception and real science. So he is a global warming scientist. Uh, the consensus all agrees the consensus is in he is mm-hmm. the, he might as well be al gore with that comment just thought i would uh highlight it science is hard work always- oh yeah here's here's why there's this disconnect between the consensus of science and the morons out there that don't get it science is hard work you go, you know, sit in the university and, and you pump out these tomes of maybe 500 pages uh, uh, and, and, you know, and very few journalists take the time to read them. But the guys in the Heritage Foundation, they crank out these slick PR pronouncements on a single page of paper that can fit in a briefcase and be read. It's designed to be read in you know, the seven-minute cab ride between Capitol Hill and, the, and Washington, Washington National Airport. And, um, and you know, the, the journalist says, well, should I read this big thick thing or this, this little thing that seems like easy to read? And, um, you know, and that's why Americans still, you know, they aren't sure about global warming. That's why Americans aren't sure about global warming. And I think he was about to say that's why America is so stupid. Listen. Like, easy to read. And, um, you know, and that's why Americans still, you know, they aren't sure about global warming. Okay. He was going to say something. Maybe not what I'm suspecting, but he was going to say something and he stopped himself. Well, Americans are stupid. Okay. You know, <laughs> it's okay for you to blow up our our corporate sponsors. You may not blow up citizen sponsors. I'm not. No, no. Our sponsors, our, our citizen sponsors, are, are very exempt smart. From that statement. Okay, good. Uh, they're a small percentage of Americans. <laughs> Sweden in 1996 decided to decarbonize its society. And Sweden in 1996 decided to decarbonize its society. Sweden in 1996 decided to decarbonize its society. And incidentally, it shut down its nuclear power plants. It, it closed the two biggest nuclear plants in the country. 
They slapped $150 a ton tax on carbon, and Sweden today is the sixth richest country by GDP in the world. And you had the same thing happen. Thousands of entrepreneurs rushed into that space to create new forms of energy from wind, from tidal, from solar, from geothermal, from putrid garbage, from sawmill waste. I was in Sweden last week. He was in Sweden last week, working with the putrid garbage. Uh, headline <laughs> from Reuters, June 20th, all the way back, June 20th, 2023. Swedish parliament passes new energy target, easing way for new nuclear power. Giving the right-wing government the green light to push forward with plans to build new nuclear plants in a country that voted 40 years ago to phase out atomic power. Changing the target to 100% fossil-free electricity from 100% renewable. Fantastic. Shall I go on? Let's do. Yes. That's keeping that's kind of um, keeping this idea alive that we can just increase our population. We don't have to care what will happen because our kids will have the engineering to figure out a way out of the mess that we've created for them. Oh, that's wait, wait, wait. Let's just listen to that again. But it's still part of the theology. The theology, okay. But it's still part of the theology that's keeping that's kind of um, keeping this idea alive that we can just increase our population. So a theology that says we can just keep increasing our population. Huh. I wonder what he could be talking about. Jeremy, which theology do you think he means? Uh, reproducing? Having kids? Having families? Ah, wait. No, we're talking theology, Jeremy. What theology? What theology? Ah, are there any religious theologies that inform people about procreating? Being fruitful well, and multiplying. Cer- certainly Judaism, Christianity, Islam, too. Huh. We don't have to care what will happen because our kids will have the engineering to figure out a way out of the mess that we've created. Jeremy, this dude is for population control. And, and you are the problem. You're the problem. Get your yard sign ready. Um, I had a breakfast meeting about three weeks ago with this, with this really extraordinary group of people with Harry Reid, who runs the Senate, Nancy Pelosi, who runs Congress, Jeff Bigman, is chair of the Environment in the Senate, um, Brian Dorman, is chair of Appropriations, Stephen Chu, Secretary of Energy, Lisa Jackson uh, from EPA, Ken Salazar from Interior, um, uh, uh, Carol Browner, who's the Energy Environment Czar, and as well as Tebow Pickens, um, President Clinton, uh, Vice President Gore, and um, and the leaders of about 10 Fortune 20 companies, including Lee Scott from Walmart, the heads of, uh, of the biggest utilities in our country, the biggest utility groups, trade associations in our country, they had a firm. And, um, they, and, and afterwards, we had about a two and a half hour breakfast talking about how we redesign the electric grid in this country to accommodate all these new forms of power. And um, afterwards, we went out and we did a panel, we sat on a panel, and talk to a group of about 600 people to explain what the president's plan was to the American public. And they had 600 opinion leaders as well as hundreds of members of the press in that audience. And afterwards, um, there was a guy in the audience, Carl Pope, who's, who's been running Sierra Club for 20 years at least. And he came up to me and he said, you know, the last time that I heard people talk like that 
was at the Free Speech Zone at the Republican Convention just before the police arrested us. And, 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 That's a pretty interesting comment. So now he sounds like a leftist protester outside of in, in the Free Speech Zone outside of a convention. Now, and this is true, but this is stuff, you know, people were with, with words that only some people like how the hippies with tie and smelling of chewing. And, and today, it's the top, you know, people in our country who have embraced and adopted this. And this is the plan that, that the Obama administration has adopted for our country. They're funding it with the stimulus package. The energy bill, a lot of which provisions were announced today, um, is designed to do exactly this, which is to harness these forms of energy. Now, here are the impediments that the Obama administration faced. Number one, huge subsidies to the, to the carbon cronies, to the incumbents, particularly the carbon cronies. And um, we have to deal with those subsidies um, it, it, uh, either through a carbon tax or through a cap-and-trade system. Jeremy, this guy, he is... Uh, he's a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah, but you took that whole clip and edited it and took it out of context. <laughs> totally out of context. <laughs> totally out of context. Jeremy, this guy's for population control. He's for I here I didn't this is the, that's the end of the clippings I took. He goes on it's the, the it's the same speech that he gave to uh, where did I it was University of Chicago. No, it was Northwestern yeah, Northwestern. That was really similar. It's the same speech. Uh, but yeah. that one was 8 years ago. This one was 15 years ago. So you've got years of the same narrative coming out of this guy. He he believes in population control. He believes in the consensus science of man-made global warming. He is in the backdoor meeting, the back, the, the closed door backroom meetings with every the entire elitist left pushing for the Obama energy policy. Jeremy, get your yard sign ready. Well, uh, I am. This guy is not what he is presenting himself to be. And it, what I didn't clip from here again, because it's from the same as the previous speech, and we already covered it, was that he wants, he argues against a, a, an incremental approach to getting rid of the carbon cronies. He is, he wants a radical ending of the carbon economy. Radical. He equates the carbon economy to slavery. This guy's well, a radical, a radical leftist. He might be Obama's guy. Leftist. You might be cheering for Obama's guy. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Okay, but you got a I, hill to I climb, buddy. You got a hill to climb. I really well, want to know what our that, citizen producers think. Write us at truth at yeah, truthbait.com. I mean, truth at truthbait.com. Who's I think all of the, I think all of these things are little issues. What? <laughs> Blaming the religious for overpopulating I mean, the planet. Literally, that's, is... that's a target on your back. Play this no, at look, church, these Jeremy. Are, Play yeah, this no, these at are church. Good, I want to hear. These are good finds. These are good finds. Keeping this idea alive that we can just increase our population. The theology that we can just keep increasing our population. These are. I wonder what he's actually referring to there. Um, the link I is mean, up I, on our on our uh, Twitter feed. Uh, I posted it 13 <clears throat> hours ago. 
because uh, certainly Ama- because certainly the United States and certainly the United States has not really had a theology of ever you know growing population but many uh countries in the third world where there's much greater pro- poverty uh has so i i don't know exactly what he's talking about there but i just i would disagree with it yes and i would disagree with probably almost most of what he has said there i think those are good finds i would like to hear uh next time jim hoft interviews him maybe you should try to equip jim hoft with some of those clips and see if he can get him to respond to some of those statements no i I want to go get him (laughs) well we you could do it have the truth bait podcast go if he's gonna if he's gonna come on the truth bait podcast but we're gonna address something here for a second back this up you basically have accused me now of presenting him out of context, and how dare you, Jeremy? No, I was joking, <laughs> Jeremy. I heard you, and I, I was triggering you. Sorry, I, I was triggering you. Uh, I encur- and I am. I encourage you, I know you and are. our listeners, to go and it, we'll put this in the show notes. It's up on the, uh, like I said, it's up on the Twitter feed right now, and. Uh, uh, you'll see that it, it it yeah I mean I could you know if I if I I could give you more context by playing you know the it was an hour long it was one of these things I sat through so you don't have to but now you should now you have to no you didn't you didn't even make one cut I was totally joking <laughs> no I did make I was totally cuts. triggering you uh, I just said those are little issues and your head blew off the top of your neck. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you hit a nerve. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, so I, I, this is, it's amazing. We are 44 uh, episodes into this podcast, and we have now encountered what I would say is truly our first actual divergent opinion. Uh, we are diverging completely on this. I am very suspicious of. Uh, Mr. Kennedy, I've heard these are disturbing things that violate many of my absolute no, core they, beliefs. And Yeah, no, those give me cause for concern. There's no question. I think that what I have um, going on in my mind is I'm still so disenfranchised with everything in, in the whole of politics Um in the way that things are and then there is there are so many issues that i agree with kennedy on still well you, you agree know, with, with what that, he's with saying the, but i don't know that well, he i don't think he's, he's lying well, i don't think he's lying about the vaccine stuff do you i don't know I do not know what his motives are. These, the things that I have found leave me not knowing what his motives are. Well, that's fair. I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, I think you've done a great job finding some, some of this old stuff. I think it's all valid and, and clearly, certainly important. Um, I, you know, what it, if he's lying, you know, yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a problem. Like if he's just a fraud on, you know, vaccine safety and actually does does think people should be forced to t- take vaccines. I mean, that would be a, I mean, he would just be like the, 
the I, probably I guess the biggest liar there is of anybody. Because even like even every, you know the Fauci's and the Obamas and everybody. I mean they they say you should be. They agree with. I mean they're open about saying you should be forced to take them. So I don't know what is he just playing that role to become popular. Is he, he just li- totally lying about that? He is he, be, does he actually? Is he actually an ally of Fauci? <laughs> no, he doesn't have. I don't think that. I don't think that the elite progressive left is always in lockstep in terms of their beliefs. I think there's a struggle that goes on, a currents of struggle that go on, currents of thought, different schools of thought that are always vying for control of the elite hard left. I think he just represents potentially a different current. Uh, I think it's... uh, That or he is literally just, he's the, like the... He's the false flag, or not false flag, it's the wrong term, but he's the he's the Bernie Sanders 2.0. I mean, if you're, here's how I'm going to believe you're right, is he becomes the Democrat nominee. Well, Bernie never became the Democrat nominee. He was just, they basically used him to channel all the energy. And misdirect. He was controlled opposition within the party. Yeah, but if he's if he's if he's so radical as you say, as and, he says, the things he's saying he, are very radical. No, right, right. But let's let, let's say he's 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 that radical. Then why would they? Why would they not? let him jump out and be the nominee because he makes them look like they're not the radicals he makes them look moderate in their eyes mm, i don't know look don't we're know not going to work this out right now it's going to take time no to, to, no to but figure this out but it's but. See, I'm still in the I'm still in the mind frame, even after hearing those clips. I mean, it was the the it was the former head of Greenpeace who was a radical environmental activist who who totally defected. So you're be, saying became he may have an had opponent a of, of Greenpeace in the intervening I, years. I, I I I just wonder because of all of the things that he says in which I agree with and things that seem to make sense and and have common sense to them and when he speaks the way he speaks he's not reading a script he's just he's not a scripted politician so it, it's it's and he, and I've heard him say things like accusing the uh you know climate change movement uh, uh declaring the the threat it it poses to usher in marxist authoritarianism why make comments like that because comments like that would undermine comments here that he's making now certainly you're correct it could just be he's saying those things to gain popularity or well, something it would be one thing take if away he was votes saying, from trump it's Jeremy, possible if he if he were saying i i hear you because i i was attracted to that too when he first said that 
uh, uh, talking about the, 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 uh, how, how radical it has become. Okay. But he doesn't talk about it in the context of, and I helped create this environment. <laughs> it would be one thing if he was doing a mea culpa while he was doing it. If he was explaining, yes, I, I even I was part of this, and now I, now I've seen the light. But he doesn't do it that way. So you want a repentance? You want him to repent? It, well, I think that would be honest. Right now, he's lying by omission. Yeah. I worry. Right? Yeah. No. Right. I. I. Yeah. That, I. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Um. Like I said, I think it would be interesting if he got pressed on some of these things. These clips you've unearthed are certainly better than anything that, you know, that uh, Reason Magazine had hit him with, you know, that were just clips floating around the internet. I mean, these are the, it certainly would be great to uh, ask him about these things. Now, 15 years is a lot of time, eight years is less time. It's certainly consistent over time of having those views. Okay. Again, I'm still mentally in a place where if he has environmental views that I disagree with, he still has all these other views that I do agree with. Yeah, but his, so envi- if his he's, environmental if the, views of rapid decarbonization will destroy us. So here's what I'm going to ask you. This is your option. Your option is somebody in the Republican field will become president. Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis, Bivak, Vivek, Ramaswamy, uh, Tim Scott, any of those, Mike Pence, will become president. Or... Joe Biden will become president, stay president, or <laughs> well, Michelle that's Obama. Not exactly, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> or Michelle Obama, which isn't going to happen. That's why Roger Stone came out and said it. Um, or Gavin Newsom, you know, something like that. Okay. Or Trump, president, Kennedy, vice president. Of all those options, which are you taking? You have to pick mm, one. See, at this point, if I, I'm, if Trump were to put Kennedy as vice president, I would be convinced then that Trump is also an op. <laughs> at that point, <laughs> meant to just corral all of us uh, over on our side here. <laughs> I, look, I don't, I don't know. Here's what I can tell you. We don't have a choice, Jeremy. The election is rigged. <laughs> so yeah. in my mind, I'm committed to voting for Trump because that's going to expose the fraud. It's going to make them cheat harder. I have gone back and forth uh, with the question in my mind, the torturing in my mind. Is it worthwhile voting anymore now that we know that the elections are stolen? And the and the answer I've arrived at is absolutely you should vote because it forces them to cheat harder and more flagrantly and it just makes it more obvious and that's really all we have left so go vote this is why i think see this is why i think nobody should vote i think nobody should that's not going to happen though and then when nobody shows up how do they fake the results (laughs) (laughs) right Uh, like the big be like the big trick you know like nobody shows up to vote <laughs> that's like all of a sudden in the middle of the night they're gonna be like there were 80 there were still 81 million votes for biden 
but nobody else voted. Uh, the big election that seems to be going on right now isn't politics, though. It's the movies. <laughs> Barbenheimer, have you heard that term? No. Yeah, so now it's like a big race between who's going to do better, Barbie or Oppenheimer? Which would you go see? Which would you vote with your dollars? I'm not going to see either. And that is exactly how you would vote politically. <laughs> you just advocated for nobody going. <laughs> I'm going to take the opposite opinion. I think everybody should go see every movie in the theaters. Uh, I have not seen Barbie yet, although for this show, I'm going to. Oh. I'm go- I know, it's torturous. I actually stepped foot into a screening of Barbie <laughs> just to see how packed it was and uh, what was the tone, and it was packed, and uh, people seemed to be enjoying it. I didn't stay long. I was on my way back to Oppenheimer. Um, but Yet you I- question my comment, Americans are stupid. <laughs> no, well, Americans are being fooled, that's for sure. Uh, yeah, Oppenheimer. Someone, well, here, let me pl- I'll play the trailer. I, I snipped a piece of the trailer. The trailer is three minutes long. I'm not playing a three-minute trailer. We're in a race against the Nazis. And I know what it means. If the Nazis have a bomb. That's it. That's all I'm playing. We all, I think, know Oppenheimer was the uh, theoretical physicist who was the director of the Manhattan Project and uh, delivered us the bomb. You know who Oppenheimer is, I think, right? Only because of this movie. <laughs> right. Well, that's actually, I, you know, you laugh, but that's, for a lot of people, that is all they're going to know, especially a lot of young people, because they're not being taught in school. Right. Well, we weren't taught in school who he was. You weren't? No. Oh, we learned who he was. Well... You're a lot older than me. <laughs> That's true. I am, actually. I forget that sometimes. Um, you were in government indoctrination uh, centers. You are mature for your age, and I'm I immature for my age. So <laughs> even that. That's why we can do this. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so I, uh, there's a young person close to me that I know who went to see it and wrote to me, that he loved it. Loved Oppenheimer. So, 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 so good. And I asked, well, what did you like about it? And he said, well, the interwoven storylines, the acting, the practical effects, and the sound design. Now, I thought about it, and I thought, yeah, actually, I thought that there that all was very good in this production. There was the, the interwoven storyline was very engaging. It was interesting there was a lot of good acting going on the effects were really well done the sound design was unbelievable the sound was uh enveloping uh disconcerting it was very well done professionally and skilled well done which is part of the trap (laughs) <laughs> That's how they get you. <laughs> you know, you, you get sucked in to the mechanics of it. 
and you are taken on a ride and you almost don't realize what you're seeing. And I don't know, I felt I felt very differently in in large part about the picture. Uh, it's a love letter to American communism, first of all. That's the headline. Uh, and it's done in a package where you're expected to believe that Oppenheimer himself was never a communist. So on one hand, they push this narrative that American communism is the real victim in the entire situation. They're the oppressed. And simultaneously, but Oppenheimer was never a communist. And it's a conspiracy theory to think that he was a communist. Even though he was married to a former communist, he was quoted uh, in his lifetime as saying that he had belonged to every communist front group on the West Coast. It was later in his life he said that. So... Uh, to me, the supremely frustrating part of this film is the villains of the film are anti-communists in America. That's, That's the villain of the story of Oppenheimer. You think you're being given a story about the creation of the atom bomb in the United States, but you're not. You're actually being fed a story, a pro-communist story, and an anti-American story. And that's without even getting into the retreading of the moral question of whether or not you should have dropped the bomb. Like, that's the, that's the common narrative people tend to go over. And there's, they certainly have some of that. But that's all window dressing, because the real narrative here is American communists oppressed... American anti-communist oppressors. So that was sort of the top level, my main, my main problem with the film. Uh, mechanically, though, it was very good. Except, I have a problem with, so the director is Christopher Nolan. And, uh, you know he's had uh, he did Tenet. I don't know if you saw Tenet. It's an it's an incomprehensible film. That no, yeah, it was a huge film. I don't think it did a ton of business, but it was because it, it was it was incomprehensible. But he he does these. Oh, what else did he do? He did. He didn't do Dunkirk. He did he did one of those. Uh, I forget which one he did. At any rate, his style of filmmaking. Uh, it, it, at least in this case, leaves you. Everybody's a caricature. Nobody's a real person in this film. So you you're left with not really being able to connect on a human level with anybody in the film. I found uh, a reviewer who speaks to this. I think Oppenheimer suffers from a lot of things that make recent Christopher Nolan movies challenging to watch. Specifically, I feel like a lot of Chris Nolan movies are so loaded with plot that they forget character and emotion. A lot of this movie feels like it's just hitting beats of Oppenheimer's life, like it's a biopic, basically. And it crams in a bunch of events, and as a result, a lot of characters don't feel well served. 
So that's pretty much what I'm talking about too, where it is, it's in a, in a weird way, it's almost a first cousin to a history channel documentary in that, in that respect. Uh, because it is, it's more concerned with the, I guess, more concerned with the plot than with the characters. Uh, speaking of the characters, though, you know, this is a very, it's a very Jewish story. I don't know if you're aware of that. A lot of Jewish scientists helped deliver the bomb. Oppenheimer, Jew. The, the protagonist is Oppenheimer in this film. The antagonist is Louis Strauss. Louis Strauss was a politician who uh, was basically, he, uh, what at the time he was running the, he ran, I think he ran the Berkeley campus when Oppenheimer was there, which is where they, you know, where, where he ended up joining the program to develop the bomb. Uh, and Le- Levi, Louis Strauss ends up his nemesis. So you have a film where the protagonist and the antagonist are both Jews. A lot of the scientists are Jews. And yet they could barely find a Jew to cast in this film. Almost none of the leads are Jews. Oppenheimer is not played by a Jew. Strauss is not played by a Jew. There are one, I went through the list, one, two, three, four. I was able to identify six Jews, easily identify six Jews, and they're fairly down the list. Now, personally, I don't care. (laughs) I don't care that there aren't Jews playing these roles. It doesn't have to be Jews playing these roles, but we don't live in that world, Jeremy. We live in the world of cultural appropriation. You know, the same Hollywood that is pushing for quotas and uh, uh, equity and uh, only an Asian can play an Asian, only a Native American can play a Native American. I think they should hire Native Americans to play Jews. Play the Jews, absolutely. (laughs) To even out from the way that the Jews used to play the Native Americans. (laughs) So I found this uh, uh, in Newsweek, an editorial, an, an opinion piece from Melina uh, Saval. An Irish actor playing Oppenheimer proves once again that Jews don't count. Uh, Robert Oppenheimer was Jewish, born to two Jewish parents. His mother, Ella, was an artist from New York. His father, Julius, em- emigrated as a teen from Germany to the United States in the late 1800s, fleeing the rampant anti-Semitism pervading Europe. Julius was penniless. Let's see, like many Jewish immigrants, survival mode meant assimilation into mainstream American life. Which, by the way, is what I think informs the Reformed Jewish movement in this country. It basically is Jews who were looking to assimilate and not stand out. Uh, Culturally, they wanted to fit in. And you can imagine why, because they are, what, they're fleeing lands that persecuted them because they stuck out. They're, a lot of people probably were just wanted to fit in and not be persecuted. So uh, I have a feeling that informs a lot about uh, the sects of Judaism that have moved away from 
overt practice. Uh, he encountered anti-Semitism at almost every turn, the article goes on. Facing discrimination at Harvard, the University of, I'm going to mispronounce this, uh, Göttingen. That's in Europe. Göttingen? 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 Um, and UC Berkeley, where after lobbying faculty head Raymond Burge to hire fellow scientist Robert Serber, he was told, quote, one Jew in the department was enough. <laughs> but in Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan's hotly anticipated biopic opening today, one Jew was too many. <laughs> the titular character, played by an Irish uh, Celian Murphy, uh, who was raised Catholic. Oppenheimer may not have ascribed to Jewish traditions, he may not have attended synagogue, he may have eaten ham sandwiches, but ethnically and genetically, he was very much still a Jew. One could even argue that it it's because Oppenheimer was in perpetual state in a perpetual state of identity crisis, constantly wrestling with the fact of his Jewishness, that a far more authentic representation of him on screen can only be achieved through casting a Jewish actor in the role. But this does not seem to have occurred to Nolan. Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion when it comes to on-screen representation uh, are almost entirely eluded, have almost entirely eluded the Jewish community. From The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, in which non-Jewish actor, actor Rachel uh, Bro, uh, Brosnahan, I don't know who that is, played Jewish comedian Miriam for the series... Uh, f- for the series' five-season run and won an Emmy for doing so, to Bradley Cooper's upcoming Leonard Bernstein biopic, which Cooper directs and in which he stars as the famed Jewish composer. With the, end, with, uh, with the aid of a prosthetic nose, Jews are rarely cast in the roles of prominent Jewish characters. At a time wherein rates of anti-Semitism continue to climb, per the FBI, Jews are the target of most hate crimes in America, of more hate crimes in America than any other ethno-religious group, Nolan's casting choice sends a very clear signal uh, that, uh, to quote comedian David uh, Bidel, Jews do not count. Um, so that's one end of the spectrum. I think she makes a point about the potential authenticity that a you know if you if you cast a Jewish actor especially a secular Jewish actor that would be they probably could bring something to the role that would be unavailable but that it's not imperative it's not you know uh, it's uh, I think of like Ben Kingsley and Schindler's List he was brilliant I don't know that anybody was sitting there thinking yeah. What a miscast. <laughs> um, just for some balance, I found another piece in a, a place called digitalspy.com. Oppenheimer is more Jewish than you realize. You may know the story of Oppenheimer, but no, this is from Gabriella uh, Geisinger. Geisinger. You may know the story of Oppenheimer, but uh, Nolan creates an evocative, intrinsically human version of that story. It was captivating and moving and quintessentially Jewish. There is always debate whenever a story centers on a Jewish person, regardless of how that individual, fiction or real, defines themselves. Kvetching over Jew face, I like that term, Jew face, <laughs> kvetching over Jew face, uh, and who should play a Jew preoccupies, well, mostly Jewish critics, to be honest. 
in his letter to the Atomic Energy Commission uh, charges, uh, which Nolan integrated verbatim into the movie, Oppenheimer wrote, quote, I had a continuing smoldering fury about the treatment of Jews in Germany. I saw what the Depression was doing to my students, and through them, I began understanding how deeply political and economic events could affect men's lives. I began to feel the need to participate more fully in the life of the community. And she goes on, there are countless more obvious ways in which Nolan addresses not only Oppenheimer's Jewishness, but all the various ways one can be a Jew. His longtime friend and colleague, uh, played by David Krumholtz, one of the, in fact, David Krumholtz was the leading Jew in the film. It's a supporting role, but he was definitely the top role played by a Jew. Uh, meets him on a train in Germany and easily uses Yiddish, a language Oppenheimer doesn't understand, despite also being a New York Jew like your writer. Between these two men is a tension of what it means to be Jewish, how one actively participates in that community, and how one internalizes what that means. Then there is Louis Strauss, played by Robert, Robert Downey Jr., another version of what it means to be Jewish. Strauss was an active Reformed Jew, having served as president of Temple Emanuel in Manhattan uh, uh, for a decade, amongst other things. On the face of it, Strauss is more Jewish than Oppenheimer, and yet, uh, in the albeit imagined scene where the two meet, there is a succinctly potent exchange that sums up this very debate. Oppenheimer addresses Mr. Strauss, pronouncing it how one assumes it would be pronounced, only for Strauss to correct him. It's pronounced straws. In the Southern fashion. The reply, ah, uh, Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer, no matter how you say it, they know I'm Jewish. So, and that gets to, just as a sub point, the antagonist in this film was not even like a an orthodox, you know, uh, deeply uh, conservatively religious Jew. It was a reformed Jew. It was a liberal Jew. So they basically create not only this narrative that it is anti-communists are the oppressor, communists are the oppressed. There is this subtext that it's there's a bad Jew and a good Jew. And neither of these Jews are played by Jews. <laughs> um well, all of that makes me want to make a movie where we cast everybody, where all the actors are the wrong race. <laughs> we, we, would, we would get so attacked. We would have a hit movie. We could have like a black family played by a white family. Like the whitest white family. The whitest white actors Good morning, we could sweetheart. find. Have you made my breakfast yet? Uh, <clears throat> what are we having? And we could have, right? And we could have a we have a white family played by black actors. Yes, you do that. Like one. we miscast everybody. <laughs> you do that. You do, you, do the, you do that one. I did the white voice. You I do the black great. one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I should have to get into it. Now. Let me think about how we're going to do that. Uh. Which yeah, don't I, really. I don't think that that's. I, I don't think it's a real controversy. Uh, frankly, you know, Jews are pretty well represented behind the camera, and it's a lot of Jewish storytelling. So I don't think it. You know, if it, it doesn't matter who's playing, I don't think it matters. 
I think that the problem, my problem with the actor who played Oppenheimer is I don't think he was very good as Oppenheimer. He's got this look on his face like he's just crazy. And I've gone back and looked at footage of Oppenheimer, and Oppenheimer has a very intense look, but nothing like what this actor looks like. This actor looks like he's insane. And Oppenheimer, I, Oppenheimer I, didn't look insane. He looked incredibly serious. I, I think this is all an attempt by the Jews that made the movie and the Jews that control Hollywood yes. and the Jews that control the entire world to make it look like they don't actually control everything. Because <laughs> right. otherwise they would have had a Jewish That's actor play right. a Jewish character. Yes. Very sneaky the way they do that. <laughs> they even brought in a non-Jewish director and he uh, adapted the, scre the, the screenplay. So it how is... can you say we control everything? <laughs> okay, so now you know what actually was offensive is there is a scene in this film that is actually truly offensive and it was not lost on the nation of India. And now Bobby or Oppenheimer? If you're on the She didn't say Bobby, she said Barbie. And now Bobby or Oppenheimer. If you're on the internet, you cannot escape this question. Both movies released this weekend. Barbie is doing better overall, but in India, Oppenheimer has pulled ahead. Just one problem though. The movie has offended people in India, including Information and Broadcasting Minister Anurag Thakur. He's upset with the censor board. He wants a certain scene to be deleted. Which scene? Well, time for some context and therefore spoilers. Around 20 minutes into the movie, there is an intimate sequence, a sex scene. It involves Oppenheimer and his mistress. Midway through the scene, the woman gets up and walks over to a bookshelf. She picks up a book. It's the Bhagavad Gita, a Hindu religious text. Now, Oppenheimer could read Sanskrit. He often quoted from the Bhagavad Gita. In this scene, the woman asks him to read from it. He does so, and the intimate sequence resumes. Now, I have to tell you this. This is the PG-13 description of what happened. That's parental guidance for viewers under 13 years of age. The real version is rated R. It's very explicit and provoking. The makers wanted to show Oppenheimer's proficiency in Sanskrit, his interest in the Gita. Great. But why do that in the middle of a sex scene? I'm sure he read the Gita elsewhere too. So the makers made a conscious choice. They decided to fetishize a holy book. It was the Bhagavad Gita in this movie. Could it be the Bible or the Quran in the next one? And I wonder how that will go. What is the point of this? Is it just to insult and provoke? Because this scene is not fundamental to the story. It doesn't question religious dogmas or customs. Neither does it pose any important questions. It's just there for the sake of it. And this is my favorite comment she makes. While writing any scene, filmmakers usually ask questions like, why is this happening? Why is the character doing what he or she is doing? In this case, the question seems to be, why not? I love that she has to lecture Hollywood. <laughs> She's right. <laughs> She's absolutely yeah. right. This scene was completely unnecessary. It was totally gratuitous. It was, you and I have talked about this before. I don't like scenes in movies where they have the, the lovemaking scene. It's pornography. This was the pornographic moment in the, in the movie. And she's absolutely right. Great that they wanted to highlight that he knew the language. There was no reason to put it into a pornographic frame. None. It's insulting that they did that. 
Why not fetishize the Bhagavad Gita? Why not provoke? Well, this provocation for the sake of it is problematic and it can be a slippery slope on matters of faith and insensitive societies. So what's the solution? Maybe try to understand Indian sensitivities better. See it as more than a big market for your movies. Try to understand the pulse and respect the faith. If not, this won't be a one-off. Now, don't hold your breath, lady, because they don't even respect the faith of people in this country. <laughs> so <laughs> they, don't, they don't respect anybody's faiths. So no, I, don't, I wouldn't hold my breath. The only faith they respect is their own religion of progressivism. That's this is it. true. And and my last clip on this, and then we'll move on, is uh, from uh, Robert uh, Oppenheimer himself. And this clip just screams to me that all of these people on the left who just uh, produced this love letter to American communism... Oppenheimer would be ashamed of them all. Science has profoundly altered the conditions of man's life, both materially and in ways of the spirit as well. It has extended the range of questions in which man has a choice. It has extended man's freedom to make significant decisions. No one can predict what vast new continents of knowledge the future of science will discover. But we know that as long as men are free to ask what they will, free to say what they think, free to think what they must, science will never regress, and freedom itself will never be wholly lost. I love the newsreel music there at the end. Okay, progressive left, what do you think Oppenheimer would have to say about you today? And the way you've treated the freedom of expression and thought in science, let alone everywhere else. He probably would put his finger on the button and press it. <laughs> so, yeah, Oppenheimer. I still do recommend everybody go see it in theaters. Don't wait for it to come uh, to your home. Buy popcorn. And buy popcorn. That is exactly right. And frankly, that is how you can give back to the podcast today. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. We've arrived at that part in the podcast where we get to explain to you how it is we do business here. You may have noticed we don't have any corporate sponsors. Uh, And that is because we are not a corporate safe production. We, we, we're not brand safe for corporations. That's why we have citizen sponsors. And our citizen sponsors are all of you. If you're listening to this program right now, you are a citizen producer of this program and can become a citizen sponsor. The way you become a citizen sponsor, it's called Value for Value. And it is very simple. If you have felt that we have delivered value to you in this podcast and previous podcasts, we ask you to return value to the podcast so that we can keep this going. Jeremy, how can they do that? What are the ways they can bring value to our podcast? Share the show, tweet the show, post the show on your Facebook. Uh, The show needs to be shared. I don't know if you noticed... Andrew, I think some of the people aren't doing it. <laughs> there could be more sharing going on. That is true. 
you know, is it that people don't want people? I think that what's happening, Jeremy, is people are using the content that we're that we're bringing, and they are repeating it in their own social circles, and they don't want to reveal the program that is that is actually informing it. Well, why would they want to do that? <laughs> because we make people look smart. That's why I'm saying I don't. I almost don't blame them. I, you know, who well, is a tough call. You know, <laughs> I love. I like our listeners looking smart, but at the same time, you need to share the show. Please share the show. I think. Uh, well, that's silly. They shouldn't do that. If they got something from the show that they thought was a viewpoint that they want to use or borrow or say it was, you know, they could. They should just say it's a show they produce. Uh, another yes, that's right. Yeah, because you they could be like you know very yeah, smart so, for that. Well, that's right. Right, like so. Yeah, like oh, you never heard this idea before. You like the idea, so I got it uh, from the show I produce, Truth Bay. Jeremy's right. That's right. Your producer, take that credit, wear it proud, and share the show. Uh, uh, you can participate by sending in stories. Be an active producer. Send us stories. and uh, oh, We had a producer send or- us clips this week. I don't have them ready for the show today, but... We had a producer actually did clippings, and that, oh, Jeremy, that's another great way people can can give back. Clip the show and post it. Don't just post the whole show. Take what is interesting to you. Post that. Do a yeah. clip, post that, and leave it, and put it, and do it with a comment on your social media about what's interesting about it. I think that's uh, people are more interested. I think in in being exposed that way through like, oh, this was interesting or that was interesting, and it makes them want to go learn more and be exposed to more. So, uh, right. I have received text messages from people who have said, that was a great point. I totally didn't see it that way. Whatever they were taught, whatever we were talking about that time, go find that, go back, find that section that made you reach out and send a text, record two minutes of it, make a clip of it and share that post that somewhere. You know, and just put it on your Facebook. Put interesting point here by genius uh, cultural therapist Jeremy Siegel and Andrew Marcus. When we get our website up, we should put up instructions for people on Mac and PC, tools that they can use for clipping and how to do it. That should be yeah. some instructional thing that we do so we can yeah, train probably. our producers. Right. Probably. I would bet there are a lot That's of people that, that that listen and they think that and they'd have they, they don't really know how to do it. But some do. I think that's true. Um that's true. I, oh, you know another way people can get back? We're gonna be launching a newsletter, an email newsletter. So please write us at truth at truthbait.com with your email address and put in the subject line subscribe. And when we have our newsletter, you will be subscribed. Write us at truth at truthbait.com and subscribe. We had a uh, citizen producer Jeff in Elkhorn last week was uh, telling us to go see this movie, uh, The Essential Church. And uh, he said he was going to see it and write us a review. 
but I didn't see a review from him. Did you? He has not sent us a review yet. I have not seen the film. You did see the film, yes? I saw it at a screening on Sunday. Um, do so. Do we? Wanna- we talked a little bit. About it. We played in the last episode. You played a trailer. I don't think we need to play another trailer of the movie because people who are listening already heard it. Um, but the film is a documentary that recaps a lot of uh, what happened during the COVID lockdowns and specifically uh, to three churches, one being uh, Grace Community Church out in California that is a there's a really popular big pastor there, John MacArthur, and he ended up suing um, or was taken to court by Los Angeles County and they tried to shut down his church, threaten him with jail. And what ended up happening is is everything uh, went in favor in the courts of his church and he and they ended up getting all their legal fees paid for by the county and won money, you know, financial damages, I think, in it. Uh, the film, you asked a question when we talked about it the other day, because we were talking about what kind of film would it be. Um, it is an informational advocacy film. Mm-hmm. And I think it for what it is, it's done fairly well. Um, it 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 gets there's a there's very good information in the film um as a as a as a christian uh there's good christian history that i was unaware of and and to that point some that might be interesting for people who aren't you know part of the church just to see that throughout the course of history there have been attempts by kings and you know uh to interfere in church functions just like they tried around the world and successfully in many cases to shut down churches from meeting and that's kind of the big theme is 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 governments getting involved in shutting down church and in, in America where we have a, a first amendment right to have church um, oh, it's totally different there was here though that's totally different in, in right, our case there Jeremy. was there was there was the 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 film uh, in in a, in a bunch of ways, I think were missed opportunities. You asked a question like, "Why were they putting it in theaters?" And I think that was a good question. I think that this film was probably a good film uh, for churches to show to their members or to their attendants. It's good information there. It's not an entertaining movie, and you know, it's not. They don't get behind the scenes into any of the lawsuits or legal cases. There's no. There's no sort of like fly on the wall where you're in the room, Mm -hmm. you know, where you can be. There's a couple of clips that the filmmaker had used from, you know, other sources, I think like Rebel News and stuff, who were on the scene at some of the kit where these pastors were put in jail. And when they were, I would say those were the actual highlights of the film is when those pastors in Canada were released from jail and there was somebody on the scene getting them, hugging their wives and getting out like in tears. That part was really you know emotionally moving um but you know it i'm not i it it's 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 good for what it is it's like what you said it's it, i would say it's basically like a citizens united film it's a it's a series of interviews basically retrospectively looking back at covid 
and how it affected and impacted the church. Um, I recommend it to people interested in that topic. Um, I don't see this movie appealing to anybody outside of the church. It's not going to become something like uh, you know the the one the other one that we were talking about the other day, the uh, Sound of Freedom or Jesus Revolution or something like those. Actually, I think penetrated a little bit. Uh, outside of the church community mm-hmm. or people who I, you know, who, who, who reside inside that community. That's a missed opportunity then. And it leaves it on the table for us to do <laughs> a story that actually does. Connect. Why, like, yeah. I mean, I was watching it and I was just thinking like, there's all these moments where, Oh, this would be a perfect cut <laughs> back to what was actually ha- what, like what was actually happening mm-hmm. or like, take me to a, just take me to a phone call between this pastor and his wife, because all they're doing is telling us about it, and it's fine yeah, for what hard. it is. It's, it's, it's hard, you know, to do retrospective that and, way. You've got to, you've got to be you know, really careful and I, how you do it. I just, I felt myself wanting, and I told my pastor actually, I was like, you know, like if this were you and this was us in that moment, and they were coming to take you away to jail, I mean. I would not have given you a choice to let me set up cameras in your house 24 hours a day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to, you know, to get so that you can catch it. And, and, and I don't want to be too critical on the, the director. I mean, maybe he did want to do something like that. And, you know, just maybe the people involved didn't want to do it. But he is a, the director is a member of Grace Community Church. So he was there. Mm-hmm. When the stuff was going on, and he was there while it was happening to their church, and while they were being threatened, oh, and so while they were being the told story. they had to close down, he should have been the story right, so, that they wrapped it around. Right. So I mean, could have done that, but basically, all it is is a retrospective look back with a lot of interviews and a lot of dramatized reenactment, um, and so it, it misses that opportunity. And I don't know. He, I watched a, I watched an interview with him talking about the film. There's all this inside baseball kind of stuff of what was going on between the church's elder board and deciding whether they should stay open or not. And this happened in churches across the country. They were deciding what do we do? Do we listen to the government? Do we not listen to the government? How do we not listen to the government in in a biblical way where we're still obeying God, but you know? exercising our freedom and those were real questions and serious issues weren't, weren't for a lot churches, of churches around the world when they were praying outside like they were trying totally. to not be they were trying to be obedient right. but they were trying to make sure they were not disobeying god's command to worship and to worship meeting as a group not just you know not just from your computer the church doesn't i mean the bible doesn't say you know worship me through the internet um so these were real issues and you know and it's serious issues but he he said he wanted to make a film because a lot, I get evidently a few. This church is like ten thousand people, and a few thousand people left when the church decided to stay open. Oh, wow. They thought that the church should have closed, and should have done masking, and should have done all the things so they should have so done. They had to and leave the church. I mean, can't you just? That's stay what home it, it happened. That's it, what you it want. Ha- <laughs> It happened in in many churches. In fact, my own family we 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 decided to discontinue attending a church we were attending because of their 
you know, compliance with everything that was going on. And we wanted... Yes, but that makes we sense because that that you wasn't wanted correct. to be able to go commune somewhere. If you are... Uh, upset but there were people there. Down, there's a simple solution. Go home. But there were people. <laughs> but there were people there that bought into the propaganda that thought that you needed to follow these things that you were jeopardizing people's health and all of that sort of stuff. But so this director said that he wanted to make a film that would, um, you know, speak to those people that had left. Oh, basically laying out the case of why and what what went on behind the scenes and i was like so did that work oh, do you think? that's a did he i don't know it seems like a massive undertake undertaking to try to you know to get your point across if they hadn't already received mm-hmm. it um but th- essentially that's kind of what it was with the addition of some interesting history and stuff that that I didn't know and think oh, things about martyrs and 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 similar situations that occurred throughout history which were interesting but in my view those could have been packaged they were produced well there was it was it was you know visually it was it was done well uh, the sound you know music all of that it was good. It was good. You know, it was it was a well done production in that they case. Need it was to more like a, you know, like a History Channel out. kind of thing. They should throw all those, of those right. tools out and and just try and focus on storytelling. <laughs> throw out all right. of the That's what high I, tag. Throw it out. Right. Or or produce like a multi part series about church history for churches to show. Mm-hmm. But it's not a movie for the movie theater. Well, I mean, so it's here, not... You know, and, and I just want to say, I, I don't have any problem with it being in the theaters, uh, and I can see a utility for it coming to theaters. My point is that it won't get what's called held over. So when you when you book into a theater, whether you've paid for the theater yourself or the theater has, uh, has bought your film to show it, uh, either way, it will start on a... Uh, usually it'll start on a Thursday or a Friday, and then it'll play for the entire week. So if you're in for the weekend, you are playing for the entire week. It is very rare that a film will play on the weekend and then be pulled on Monday. Uh, the booking is for that entire week that follows. And then if you are he- what's called held over for the next weekend, that only happens uh, if you are generating business. So... Uh, they they won't keep you if you're not generating business uh, because they need people they need butts in the seats they need people there buying popcorn so uh, uh, my point is is if the film doesn't entertain if it doesn't and again I want to be careful when I say entertain if it doesn't tell a story if it doesn't make storytelling the main thrust of how it achieves what it's trying to achieve it won't be there for very long. Because people go to the movies to see stories. And it sounded to me in that interview uh, with the director, like he actually made a point of saying, like, there's a story here. Like, I think he, <laughs> he wanted it to be. It <laughs> right. I think he wanted it to be storytelling. Uh, but it's only storytelling in as far as it is retrospective telling some things that happened. But there's no, there's, and again, I think it's fine for what it is. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be in the theater, but I'm, I'm, I'm agreeing with you. The point is like, where, I don't know, I don't know that that, 
I, I don't know what it does or you know i don't see people running out uh to go see it mm-hmm. um you know and it's so it's it, it's too bad because i think in that time and you know i wasn't around a church like that but uh it, looking back it's, it's easy to look back to and like i said i don't want to criticize too much because you know maybe he maybe he did you know, want to do something like that, but couldn't. And then maybe he didn't have the idea of putting himself in the film or something like that. I don't know, but, um, it, you know, it's, it's kind of what we thought it would be mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know, there is, like good. I said, there is a utility. You've said that too. There is a utility for this kind of film. If you are into, yes, I'm, it's not that it's, it's not that it's wrong or bad or shouldn't be made. It's just that it's the, the, in like from our, our experience and the way that we've tried to, make content and documentary stuff we were working on our style was more and especially with hating breitbart like if anybody still hasn't seen that um you know where you're really kind of living with the main character uh of the film and then that takes you through Mm -hmm. uh through his experiences in real time to see uh you know the overarching point that you make right the uh, fact is, is that, that you make in the film andrew breitbart was our vessel we were telling a story about media bias media malfeasance media malpractice and andrew breitbart was the perfect vessel to tell that story because it was all right happening in real time around him in a very exciting engaging energetic way so uh he was the gift to to tell that story um, and that's, you know, that is, that's, yes, for us, that's, 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 the, those are the waters we like to swim in to tell, and to I, tell a story. You know, and with this, where I think, where I think there is missed opportunity, I think in some ways, unfortunate, uh, it's too bad that I don't, I don't think this film is a film for people outside the church. I think it's too in the weeds and, and, and it was long and some of it carried on too far and too long basically even for me as someone who's interested in the material um but i would say that's unfortunate because i know a lot of people that are you know outside the church community that are like you know why wouldn't the churches close why do they think they should stay open and it, it it'd be good if there was a way to communicate that argument uh to those people but they're not going to see this movie my chief complaint in terms of See, I want a lot of content like this in the theaters. I want it to be good because I want people who feel as though Hollywood has not been serving them, has not been speaking to them, has not been giving them any stories that they would want. I want them to have content in the theaters that they that does speak to them. It doesn't have to speak to everybody else, uh, but you know, uh, uh, it needs to be engaging. It needs to. It needs to tell a story. So it is in theaters July 28th. And if this is the kind of content that you might find engaging, then please go and see it July 28th, or perhaps your church will be showing it. Um, and hopefully there's uh, uh, something uh, for it. I, I, wanna, I still want to see it. And Jeff, uh, please still send us your take on this just because uh, Jeremy yeah, and I have no, talked I about would- it. Yeah, I I would definitely I was looking for it, uh, but I didn't hear it yet. But I did see it Sunday night, so I wanted to uh, 
offer my thoughts on it. I want to see it. I know I still have Barbie I have to see. <laughs> I'm going to go see Barbie. Um, I would definitely go see Essential Church over Barbie. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> uh, I think we're going to give Jeff uh, producer credit for that segment too, by the way. that was We would not have even known about that film if it was not for him. And I uh, thank you, Jeff, for putting that on our radar. That was definitely worth us uh, getting into. Um, oh, I'm just going to, I have a couple stories that I don't have any, I don't have any audio for them, but I want to play. I just want to talk about, um, (laughs) Chicago's getting really good. The livability factor in Chicago is fantastic. The old mayor's dailies, uh, as corrupt as they were, they knew that Chicago would, uh, thrive or die on the vine if it was uh whether or not the city was livable for families do you remember that when you used to live in chicago that was a that was a big theme of the dailies uh the daily junior especially he uh, was his whole goal was to make chicago livable for families he thought that was the key to success i don't remember that marketing but i'll take your word for it it was absolutely prevalent everywhere in society um <laughs> Here's a headline. Uh, 12-year-old boy gets mugged as Chicago's robbery surge continues. 12-year-old boy was among the victims targeted in a Sunday afternoon spree. More robberies were reported overnight, and another popped up Saturday afternoon. The 12-year-old was walking in the 2300 block of West Chicago Avenue when four men demanded his property around 1225 p.m. I think it's a loose use of the term men. (laughs) What kind of man (laughs) robs a 12-year-old? Four. It took four men to rob a 12-year-old, too. Uh, Yeah. Chicago. It could have been a really big 12-year-old. I suppose. 12-year-olds getting robbed in Chicago. I think the new communist mayor in Chicago is doing a bang-up job. Uh... And then this breath of fresh air, this story started circulating um, a couple days ago. 74% of college students say they would report professors for saying something offensive. Uh, this is from College Fix. And when, let's see, when, this, when those results are broken down by ideology, a different pattern emerges. 81% of liberal students think professors should be reported to the university for saying something deemed defensive. 53% of conservative students who... Th- uh, 53% of conservative students uh, who think so... Uh, the Institute reported. Okay, yeah, so 53% of conservative students thought. That's alarming, too. Half the conservative students. They thought that they should be reported for saying things like, um, uh, a civilized society doesn't need guns. Um, well, not I getting vaccinated is, for COVID is irresponsible and inconsiderate to others. I mean, like I can see where you might disagree with those things, but to demand that, to, to say I that would, you would I think they should people, be reported. Yeah, I think they should be reported for a lot of things they teach. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, There's a lot of they. They're like preaching pedophilia now. I mean, I think they should be reported for that. Well, that yes, okay, that's fine. Um, yeah, when, when you do the breakdown, when you really dive down, there's a big cutoff between the liberal students and the conservative students. Uh, the 
let's see, not getting vaccinated for COVID is irresponsible. 14% of conservatives said that should be reported. And that was the highest number of any that should be reported among con- among conservatives. The, uh, the lowest number among liberals, biological sex is a scientific fact. There are two sexes, male and female. That was the lowest one that would get reported. That was nearly double the highest reported one of the conservatives. That one came in at 27%. So there's definitely a disconnect between... Uh, which group of students are really pushing this? Um, did you uh, did you have more on that? No, I don't have a clip on it, but it's just did depressing. You, did you, did you see uh, Obama's personal chef drowned? Uh, you know that's what's so his crazy about that story. So when I first heard, when, it, when the news first broke, and it was just, you know, kayaker missing near Obama's compound, my first, <laughs> my first thought was, oh, they killed him. <laughs> somebody, the, the Obama's so killed somebody. And then I thought, okay, it's- don't, don't, no. Don't don't let that be your first impulse. That's your. That was my first thought. <laughs> I here I thought I was being like a bad person. Like how could how Do you jaded know? and cynical have I become that that's my first thought? And this is now now that you said that things are starting to make sense to me because I'm like this is weird. Like even the amount of coverage it's get, you know it's like it's a it's a huge story. But that was it's before everywhere. I knew that it was his chef. That was that was just person just somebody then missing, when i right? when i heard it was a, a black man near the obama compound now now you want to hear how dark and cynical i am my first thought was well i guess my next thought was oh obama's lover yep they had to take out obama's lover <laughs> he knew too much there's a couple weird things like listen listen to yeah this is cbs uh here we go We are learning about a tragic story involving former President Obama's personal chef. The body of Tafari Campbell was found yesterday in a pond near the Obama's Martha's Vineyard estate after police were alerted Sunday about a man struggling in the water. Wait, wait, wait. Obama's Uh, saying Campbell's drowning death has. He was found where? Did he just say he was found in a pond? I think he. That's the first I'm hearing of that. Chef. The body of Tafari Campbell was found yesterday in a pond what? near the Obama's Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> I hadn't heard that. That's the first time I I'm it's hearing a big, that. Wow. I think it's a. I think it's a really big pond. How does a kayaker die in a pond like that? Well, and so yeah, but like all of it is weird. After police were alerted Sunday about a man struggling in the water. Obama's say Campbell's drowning death has left them brokenhearted. Scott McFarland has more. Possible drowning. Massachusetts State Police say divers found the 45-year-old yesterday morning after an hours-long search. Police had been called to the Obama residence Sunday night after someone had reported a possible drowning in a nearby pond. As far as we know, they're currently in the water. The body of a man was found about 100 feet from the shore in roughly 8 feet of water. He was later identified as former White House sous chef Tafari Campbell. Now listen to this again. 
Massachusetts State Police say divers found the 45-year-old yesterday morning after an hours-long search. Police had been called to the Obama residence Sunday night after someone had reported a possible drowning in a nearby pond. Someone. Someone. What someone? Someone. Same thing in ABC's report. Is this pond report. on Obama's property? It's like, yeah, it's like a, it's like right, it's, I don't know because the photos you see, I mean, it looks like part of a bay or something, you know, like it looks like it's out there, you know, like they have a coastal home, right? So it's, it looks like a, an inlet. Of course, I don't know if that's, that's where it was or not, but they, I just thought that was weird. Every report says someone, a report from, uh, after a call came from someone and no one is saying who the 911 call came from. And uh, Gateway Pundit has uh, part of the 911 dispatch call, but it the only voice is the actual dispatcher. You don't hear the call coming in making the actual report. There's only a dispatcher, you know, saying, you know, telling the you know police to go out and check the scene, which you, you hear a little bit of that in this this clip here. As far as we know, they're currently in the water. The body of a man was found about 100 feet from the shore in roughly eight feet of water. 100 feet from the shore. Okay, so eight feet of water. I'm right now looking at a photo, an aerial photo of the of the property, and it looks like there's an adjacent property. I don't know if it's part of the compound. I, I would be. I wouldn't be surprised if they owned that. The, this adjacent piece as well. And it looks as though there is some sort of a pond, a large pond, a hundred feet. Oh, I, don't, I mean, I can't tell how many feet, but what, what would, it sounds probably more than a hundred feet back from the coastline. So it's, it's inland. If it's a pond, if it's what I'm looking at, it's inland from the coastline. Yeah. Everything, the pond is, is, uh, I mean, there's pictures. This is on the Daily Mail. Like, there's pictures of the pond on Monday morning. So it's a looks like a big pond. Why would you kayak in that? And why would you do that at night? Well, that's one of the other weird things. So this does not make sense. He was later right identified as former White House sous chef Tafari Campbell. Authorities said the Obama family was not staying at that home during the accident. Now Wait, that's also he, another who's thing. Who's he cooking for? Right. That's another part that's in every report. The Obamas weren't there. The Obamas weren't there. The Obamas weren't staying yeah, there. Maybe one Obama was. Well, <laughs> uh, according to the Gateway Pundit, uh, there's a headline. Wow, story changes. Barack and Michelle Obama were on Martha's Vineyard when their private chef mysteriously drowned. Of course, so somebody, somebody uh, in the this story, the, the the cover story went out, and then the Obamas heard it, and they were like, "No, yeah, come on, guys, we got to do better than that." <laughs> Who was he there cooking for? <laughs> right. You know, they just let him hang out at their mansion, I guess. Uh, the only thing you have left to do is just put the labels on. No, this is, this is him. Campbell could be seen here in a White House video during the Obama administration making homemade beer for the president. 
In a statement, the Obamas said they first met Campbell during his time working at the White House. They say they then asked him to stay on with the family after the president left office. The Obamas added that they were brokenhearted over the loss of someone they described as, quote, a beloved part of our family. Police say Campbell was visiting Martha's Vineyard at the time of the accident, but it's not yet clear whether he was staying at the Obamas' home. For CBS Mornings. Now, this guy Campbell's married with kids. Yeah. Well, but so okay, is Obama. So, right. So, <laughs> but he's not on, uh, you know, he's he's vi- is he's visiting Martha's Vineyard, you know? Is he visiting him with his family? Doesn't seem like it. So, of course, he was there with the Obamas. Now, listen to this the this uh, ABC report. It turned out of the tragedy of the Obamas stayed in Martha's Vineyard, where the family chef was found dead. The Obamas were not there at the time. We're learning more about what happened. First thing Stephanopoulos says, the Obamas weren't there well, and, at the time and, and when it happened. And weren't there at the time is not the same as weren't staying there. But regardless, this year, this is CBS and ABC. These are this is official narrative coming Absolutely. out. At least in the beginning yes. of it, these were coordinate. These were scripted comments. Marco Morgan has the details. Good morning, Marco. Good morning, guys. Talk about a tragedy here. The husband and, and father of two went missing about a hundred feet offshore Sunday evening. His body wouldn't be recovered until the following day. The Obamas saying they now join the victim's family and those who knew him in grieving the loss of Tafari Campbell. African-American male on a paddleboard, no life preserver. This morning, tragedy unfolding near the Obama family's Martha's Vineyard estate. Police recovering the body of 45-year-old Tafari Campbell, a beloved personal chef and friend of the former president and first lady. The call for help came in Sunday evening for the missing paddleboarder, who witnesses tell police was last seen wearing all black before they eventually lost eye contact with him. Jeremy. It's, it's even crazier. You don't paddleboard in a pond. I'm going out. Well, hold on. I feel like going out paddleboarding tonight. <laughs> I'm not going to wear a life jacket, and I'm going to wear all black. And somebody's going to see me do it. <laughs> <laughs> someone's going to witness that I'm doing this. And someone's going to call 911 and tell them I drown. Yeah. Who goes paddleboarding in a pond at night <laughs> in all black with no life jacket? When you do water sports, you usually, not always, but usually have colorful, bright colors on. Usually, not always, but usually. I mean, there are some all-black wetsuits, and there are black bathing suits, you know. But usually when you, like, so if you didn't know, I used to competitively race uh, yachts on Lake Michigan, big boats. And you have gear, you have, life, you know, you have uh, flotation devices, you have foul weather gear, you know, there's all sorts of scenarios you might encounter. And of course, you don't always wear those when the weather is nice, but you typically have bright colored clothing. Foul weather gear is bright yellow and bright red. In the, in, in the event that you go into the water unexpectedly, you can be found a lot more easily, right? What color is every life jacket you've ever seen? You know, there's always, like, reflective material on them, right? So, it's it's strange, first of all, to go out doing something and not wear... Like, I think if you're going on a paddleboard or you're going, like, windsurfing or something, 
I I always see people wearing a some sort of flotation device. Well, you know, as I'm looking online right now at paddleboarding, there is almost nobody wearing <laughs> a flotation device. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it seems to be an activity that a lot of people do without any flotation device. Um, well, that's stupid. It is, but you know, I don't. Uh, I don't see a lot of people doing it at night, uh, especially alone. On a pond. With dark clothes on. <laughs> it, did, it doesn't make sense. Now, it could be that this is just the fog of war. You know, people, it's you need to give it time for the actual facts to come out, and we're just in a media environment where they're just ready to take anything to air to beat somebody else, and they don't care what the facts are. And so That's true. You know, we're just getting it, it garbage. Garbage in, garbage out. Uh, that but or this listening. is a suspicious story. Well, keep listening. A 40-year-old male, possible drowning. Campbell's paddleboard and hat would surface, but no sign of Campbell. Then, the unimaginable. The husband and father of two found dead 100 feet from shore at a depth of about 8 feet in the Edgartown Great Pond. Police say divers found his body by deploying a side-scan sonar from a boat. Campbell first worked as a sous chef for the Obamas at the White House. Gotta keep it under lock and key. Seen here brewing beer in this White House video. You take the bear bottle. Now authorities investigating the drowning. Campbell was on the vineyard visiting. The Obamas were not there at the time of the incident. Mr. and Mrs. Obama released in a statement calling him a warm, fun, extraordinary, kind person who made all of our lives a little brighter, adding he was a talented sous chef at the White House. He's been part of our lives ever since, and our hearts are broken that he's gone. Campbell is survived by his wife and their twin boys. The couple's Instagram posts over the years showing their close relationship and tight-knit family. And state and local police are investigating the incident. And guys, if you go to his Instagram page, it was full of life and personality. This so is young. a loss right here. Yes. So, so he's 100 feet away. 100 feet is like three pool lengths. You're saying it should be deeper. Edgerton Pond, well, since I heard him, I heard it in that report, I looked it up. It appears to be that that might be the area. Because uh, there's, a, I see this, um, the Vineyard Gazette, Martha's Vineyard News, President Obama buys home on Edgerton, Edgerton Great Pond. Well, it's a big body of water. It just might be the area. It looks like a big body of water. Yeah. But and it looks like a body of water somebody could drown in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's just it's not some a pond stuff in a that's weird. Sense though, it's not like you would no, think but a like a hundred. F- but still, like, and you could drown a hundred feet offshore of Lake Michigan, you know, in big waves and rough chop. I don't know what the conditions were here. If he went out without a life jacket on at night, it would assume it was calm conditions right like you would assume because there are times i remember living in chicago lake michigan was crashing over mm-hmm. lakeshore drive and those were times i would not consider going out for a swim with a life jacket on right <laughs> got a good chance of right. dying no, and if, something he's, like that. if he's the kind but of there person are that times you could night. wade right in there are times you could wade right into Lake Michigan and go for a swim all day, and it's calm, flat water. There's not even a ripple on 
on the water. I've been out swimming in the middle of Lake Michigan, you know, and, and, you know, there's, there's like zero risk of anything happening unless you faint in the middle of your swim. So it's, if he, if he made a decision to go out, wake, uh, paddle boarding in the dark or or maybe it wasn't dark yet if it was evening time but he's going out without a life jacket on you'd assume it was calm conditions and in calm conditions i think it's generally pretty easy to swim a hundred feet not only that you would assume that he is not an amateur if he's going out alone at night without a life jacket, you'd assume he's done this before and is very comfortable with it. No, now there's also, uh, evidently, he went with somebody. Well, who'd he go with? Nobody knows. Well, he went with whoever hit him over the head while he was out there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, it, it, it doesn't add it's, up it's, either because it's, weird. it's too soon or because there's something going on. It is weird. It is weird. Well, I, um, I and then and then there's video. Of course, it's on Gateway. <laughs> he there's he there's, for some reason there's 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 pictures of him like from his Instagram or something a couple years ago or a year ago. Taking swimming lessons at a gym, and he's like right. an adequate swimmer, like swimming yeah, very freestyle. Swimmer. Yes. Well, maybe so he was drunk. It's a weird maybe story. the guy was drunk. Maybe he's an alcoholic. It's a maybe weird. He was drunk. You don't like this. Is where I'm saying, I like, I, it's a weird story. We're joking it's about it. It's a weird it, story. It, yes, there's something that is that, uh, so far. Here's it what I'm gonna say. Up. Here's what I'm gonna say. You made the point. As soon as you heard about it, you immediately thought. The Obama's killed somebody. Yes. <laughs> Immediately. That's what I'm trained for now. <laughs> I, I suspect no matter what occurred, whatever the truth is here, we're all supposed to think the Obama's killed somebody. Ah. <laughs> they want us to think that. They want us to have this thought in our There mind. is no chef. He's a deep fake. AI generated. <laughs> he never exists. How do we know he existed to begin with? That's all I'm saying. Uh, did you see this story out of CNN about the shoplifting in San Francisco where they went to a convenience store? No, they went to, it was like a Walgreens uh, or CVS, something like that. And while they're they're doing a segment about shoplifting, the store is shoplifted three times right in front of their camera. And they no. they've chained up they've chained up the freezer section. Like there's literally they've got chains running across the freezer section so you can't open the doors. Richie Greenberg walked into a San Francisco Walgreens when he saw in the frozen food section this. Chains, heavy chains that went from padlock to padlock on both sides of the doors. And this was bizarre, something I'd never seen before. This is just more icing on the cake telling us that rampant crime is, is, has become a, a regular part of life. So typical that in the 30 minutes we were at this Walgreens, we watched 
three people, including this man, steal. Did that guy pay? Did that guy pay? He didn't pay. Now, I need to give you some context that you can't hear. But when she says this guy's stealing right in front of us. Oh, typical that in the 30 minutes we were at this Walgreens. We watched three people, including this man, steal. They blurred out his face. <laughs> the guy is literally stealing on camera, walking out the door with the stuff without paying, and they blurred out his face to protect his privacy. I, I've i noticed this happening uh, often, actually. The, bl- the blurring out of their faces? Yeah, uh, think about like look. Start looking at those types of clips, like security camera clips and stuff like that, and uh, you'll notice that you'll notice that they always blur their face, and it's like, why are they blurring their face? <laughs> wouldn't want to wouldn't want to help commi- you know get the get his image out there so people might be able to capture the guy. You know, nobody's trying to capture anybody. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, news. Literally, a news organization hiding information. <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. When thieves turned to cleaning out ice cream and frozen burritos, workers grew so frustrated they resorted to the chains. They were ordered down by corporate because of the negative messaging. What? <laughs> they were ordered down by corporate because of the negative messaging. Uh. Huh. But Walgreens isn't the only retailer impacted in San Francisco. At this store, frozen food is controlled with a cable lock, fake eyelashes locked behind plexiglass, along with lotion and nail polish. Wait, fake eyelashes, lotion, and nail polish? I think we're getting to the heart of the problem, Jeremy. Women. Uh. <laughs> Toxic femininity. <laughs> There's, why are these women stealing all this stuff? Or they're, or they're not women. They're they're men, women. Oh yeah, you're right. Well, those are real women, Jeremy. How dare you? <laughs> they're he she's. So that's the that is the subtext to the story. <laughs> the context is the blurring out of the faces of the people stealing, and the subtext is it's women or people who identify as women. Uh, meanwhile, the person who they blurred out that was not didn't appear to be somebody uh, identifying as a woman. Uh, it gets, this is even better, more, more context for you. Listen to this. $14 bags of coffee Actually, under lock and key. What is this? Um, so now she's talking to somebody who's a guy who is standing in front of a display of Pete's coffee, uh, and it's all behind plexiglass. Uh, this is in a grocery store. This is not like in a convenience store in uh uh in uh, uh, uh where was that in Missouri where <laughs> where uh, the hands up don't shoot happened uh in uh Ferguson Yeah, in Ferguson, Missouri. It's not that's not where this is. It's not in that convenience store. This is in a grocery store in San Francisco. $14 bags of coffee Actually, under lock and key. What is this? Um, I don't know. I don't understand why coffee. Oh, no, here she is. But oh, 
<laughs> now along comes someone to unlock the display for him so he can get his coffee. It's become kind of like a police state in San Francisco. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. I love that he laughs when he says that. It's become <laughs> kind of a police state <laughs> in San Francisco. Cheers. But oh. <laughs> it's become kind of like a police state in San Francisco. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Well... <laughs> Here's some context for you. Hanging from the ceiling all the way down the length of the store are trans and gay pride flags. So, little little mystery to figure out how your town got to the point where you have to lock up the coffee. Yeah, great place. But, Green hold on, place. you know, we don't jump to any conclusions. When you're seeing that level of retail theft, that tends to be subsistence level retail theft. People, people are, who are hungry. Yeah, people who are hungry for nail polish and eyelashes. <laughs> people are hungry. Here's some important context, though, on the city, Aaron. Uh, property crime and violent crime at the end of last year was actually lower than it was before the pandemic. Nothing to worry about here, folks. Everything's fine. Put it all in context. Mm-mm-mm. Oh, and to help you with your shopping, I don't know if you this story. I saw this on the Daily Mail. I had to clip this. They're promoting this app called Veebs. And Veebs is you, you walk around the grocery store, you take a picture of an item that you might want, and it tells you how woke the company is that makes that item. The best way to fight against these woke brands is with our wallets. That's why I use the Beebs app when I do my grocery shopping. And she's holding up a pint of Ben & Jerry's. Okay, this has a very poor rating, so we definitely are going to be putting this back. But look at all the other ice creams in the store that have great ratings. We have Bluebell, we have Dryers, Telemuk, Blue Bunny, Halo Top, even Baskin Robbins. So let's go pick up some ice cream that supports our values. So now she goes to the ice cream aisle, uh, to the other side of the ice cream aisle, and she pulls out Dryers. Well, I looked it up. Dryers is a British company. It's actually uh, owned by a uh, partnership created by Nestle. Uh, between Nestle and a French company. Um, so it's owned by Nestle. It's owned by a British and a French company. So there's there are your values for you. She goes on. All right, now on to the next item on my list. Next on my list are tampons. Let's see what rating Tampax has. So they have a very low rating, but it shows that Playtex has a much better rating. Playtex does make an organic cotton tampon, which is a lot better. See how simple value-based shopping is? Yeah, you know how simple value-based shopping is? Playtex. You know who the top owners of Playtex are? You got it. BlackRock and Vanguard. And in fact, I went and I added it up. They own between the two of them. No, also iShares because iShares is owned by BlackRock. So between BlackRock and Vanguard, they own roughly 44% of the company. There are your values. I clipped one more clip just to frame it. It's a trap. <laughs> it's a trap. It's a trap. Don't go for it. Do not download Veebs. A, I think this entire news story is just a native ad for uh, for Playtex 
and for Nestle. Yeah. Uh, Playtex is owned by uh, Haynes. So, yeah, I mean, this is just a, it's a scam. It's a scam. Do not shop with Veebs. And I don't even know what she's talking about. This is that what that last part there with the playtex. That is absolutely classic wi- biological women trying to be gatekeepers of periods. This is what I mean when the transphobia just comes out, the audacity and just the 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 arrogance for cis women to believe that they own periods, that they own womanhood. <laughs> you don't. Okay, you don't own periods, you don't own womanhood. You experience both, and both are different for every person, but as a cis woman, it doesn't belong to you, so you can't gatekeep it. Like, hello? (laughs) Like, goodbye? (laughs) Aww. Uh, And then there was this clip from this is my last clip this is the uh do you do you have anything else you want to play before we get before we wrap this up no uh this comes this is a uh black father uh in a school district in california in temecula california there's no doubt in my mind that those who have transgender and gay family members friends and co-workers Sincerely believe by affirming their lifestyle demonstrates love. Truth without love is a travesty, but love without truth is a lie. Boys cannot be girls. Girls cannot be boys. Men do not get pregnant. An unborn child inside or outside the womb should be attracted instead of being ripped limb by limb from their tiny bodies by planned deathhood and the Democrat Party. Now you're, now you're justifying the sexual perversion of young children. Governor Gavin Newsom, pharaoh of California, wants to spend $1.6 million on textbooks in Temecula to facilitate the deviant sexual behavior of Harvey Milk. Why? Because children must learn gay pride. If Gavin Newsom cares so much about our children, when was the last time he changed one of our baby's diapers at 2 o'clock in the morning? Took one of our sick children to the local hospital? Took our children to local libraries to do story hour? Never. Because that's not the responsibility of the woke pharaoh of California. Parental rights come from God, not men. Will Gavin Newsom spend $1.6 million on Judeo-Christian textbooks, an intricable part of American history? Will he create safe spaces for Christian conservatives, students, teachers, administrators, principals that believe in two genders, male and female, and that all lives matter, including ex-transgenders and ex-gays? Of course not because self-absorbed pathological liars like the Democratic Party are predominantly alethiophobic, haters of objective truth. For over 170 years, the Democratic Party has been a wicked organization, continually rejecting objective truth. Their systemically racist Jim Crow laws kept 4 million Negroes, 99.9% in slavery. Now the California Board of Education is grooming our children for pederasty and pedophilia, maps, or minor attractive perverts. (laughs) 
This, for this reason, God has raised up Governor Gavin Newsom that through our newly elected Temecula School Board, God might show his power and proclaim his word in the world. Pride and arrogance is why I destroyed Pharaoh of Egypt and his order his army, and if necessary, I will destroy you and your woke army. Pharaoh, Gavin Newsom, I am the almighty God. Let my people go and leave the, my kids alone, or you will reap the whirlwind of my wrath, because I always watch over my children. So let it be written, so let it be done. Alethophobia. Isn't that amazing? Alethophobia, the fear of hearing the truth. Not to be confused. I've never heard that. Yeah, me either. I looked it up. Uh, not to be confused with uh, verit- uh, veritophobia, which is the fear of telling the truth. So there are two different fears. There's the fear of he- uh, hearing the truth and the fear of telling the truth. I think we have huh. a show title. <laughs> that's it. That's that's it. Do we call it alethophobia or do we call it truthophobia? I have a alethophobia uh, ke- uh, with Kennedy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, alethophobia it is. <laughs> Thank you very much, Jeremy Siegel. Uh, you, many Mr. commitments in your life and ill. And you made it through and you sounded terrific. You did not sound sick today. So thank you very much, Jeremy. And thank you to our producer. I hit my mute button on my sneezing and coughing. Ah, so you were very good on the button. Um, thank you to our producers, uh, to Jeff, and to who else do we have to thank today? It may just be Jeff. Well, we have to thank Al. We do. Anyways. Yes. And his he just sent more in that we were waiting for, that we were waiting for. If we get anybody to volunteer yet to be an assistant producer for, for Al. Al. <laughs> <laughs> Al is going to need to start a podcast so he can have that ask. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he'll come on the podcast. We got he could he could have a guest spot. Yeah. Yeah, we should. I don't know if he would want to. Um All right. Well, listen every Tuesday and Friday for the Truth Bay Podcast. We come to you twice a week without fail. To the best of our ability. And don't forget to share the show, everybody. And email us at truth at truthbait.com to sign up for the newsletter. Put subscribe in the subject. And now, back into the sea of clickbait with us all. <laughs>